When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You have been listening to President Biden speaking in Howell, Michigan, pushing his two major economic priorities. Let's bring in CNN's Jeff Zeleny traveling with the president in Michigan. Jeff, why is the president taking his message on the road? Well, Jake, simply to rise above the noise in Washington, the president clearly making the case for the substance of both of these bills. First, infrastructure, talking specifically about the need for the U.S. to stay competitive with the world needs to improve this country's infrastructure, and then talking about his education programs, health care, climate change, and the like. Uh, but Jake, I can tell you, uh, it is similar to a speech we could have heard Joe Biden deliver a year ago here in Battleground, Michigan. He delivered these speeches on the campaign trail. He announced these initiatives uh, in the spring. Summer has gone by, now we're into the fall. So simply the White House is trying to refocus the nation on his agenda items. He said it's not left versus right, not progressives versus moderate, but in fact, it is that. In fact, Democrats have very slim majorities, as we know, in the House and indeed the Senate. So that is what this president, this White House, this administration needs to push through. But he simply is trying to get out of the noise in Washington to rally support for why the ideas behind these bills are necessary. But Jake, left unspoken were actually what is going to be cut out of these ambitious ideas that he campaigned on a year ago. Because now the bottom line is, what is the price tag? Not $3.5 trillion. It is likely to be $2 trillion, if that. So that is something that the president, of course, has to fill in the blanks. But in short, he's back here in Michigan trying to make his case for these bills. But his audience actually still, Jake, is Washington. Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. CNN's Ryan Nobles uh, joins us now live on Capitol Hill. And Ryan, uh, President Biden obviously hoping his message in, in Michigan will trickle up uh, the provisions in his legislation uh, poll well. Um, but right now they have some, uh, you know, holdouts in Washington. Do you think he can change any minds at this point? Well, there's no doubt that there's been a refocusing of the White House in their outreach to Capitol Hill to try and get Democrats on the page, uh, on the same page, and remind them that they have more in common than they have uh, that divides them. Uh, and you see the president making this plea uh, to his Capitol Hill colleagues through a series of meetings. He had one yesterday with more uh, progressive members, another one today with more moderate members, to remind them of the specific provisions in his agenda uh, that, as Jeff mentioned, poll very well, that people, uh, by and large, are supportive of. Uh, and he wants them to get away from just referring to this top-line number as an end-all, be-all, and instead prioritize these prior, these uh, programs that they everyone can agree upon and then figure out for how long they're willing to pay for them and then present that to the American people through a deal uh, that all sides can agree upon. But. But, Jake, there's no doubt that there is still a real impasse here between the moderate wing of the party and the more progressive wing of the party. Uh, moderates at this point just aren't comfortable uh, with that hefty price tag of as much as $3.5 trillion, which now even progressives have said they're willing to come down upon. But there's still a pretty monstrous chasm between 
where progressives are willing to come down to and what moderates are willing to go up to. Uh, and the president is trying to find some common ground there, you know, floating in, uh, somewhere in the range of $2 trillion. That may be too much for someone like Joe Manchin and not enough for someone like Pramila Jayapal. So the goal here is show him out in the, you know, in America, you know, with uh, the infrastructure behind him showing, you know, shovels in the ground uh, with the positive progress that could come from passing this legislation as a reminder that they all have the same goals. They just have to find a way to get there. Jake. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A warning that Donald Trump's next administration could be filled with January Sixers if he were to win in 2024. His former press secretary joins me next. And he tried to play spoiler in the 2016 presidential election. Now Evan McMullen is here to talk about his new campaign against Trumpism. Stay with us. In our politics lead now, a chilling warning about what the future might look like if former President Donald Trump runs and wins and takes back the White House in 2024. He'll be unleashed. He will seek revenge and retribution against anyone he thinks wronged him. He will enact draconian policies and issue a flurry of pardons. All of that, according to former top Trump aide, Stephanie Grisham, who joins me now. She was the White House press secretary and communications director for President Trump and the chief of staff and communications director for First Lady Melania Trump, and she is the author of the brand new book, I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw at the Trump uh, White House. Stephanie, thank you so much. I appreciate your being with us. Um, I want to get to that warning in a moment, but first, I, I, I want you to talk to any of our viewers uh, who might be sitting there skeptically with their arms crossed, wondering why should they trust what you've written and what you're saying now, um, because on CNN earlier today, you admitted that you lied on behalf of then President Trump. So why should the public believe that you're telling the truth now? That is a fair question. Uh, I think that the fact that I have admitted just that shows that, you know, I'm really trying to be as open and honest as possible. The book, uh, when people read it, I think you will see that, you know, I don't I don't spare many people, but I also am very, very hard on myself. I am not out for for any kind of redemption, I just wanted to, to lay out a book. You know, after I left D.C., I, I left um, and, and watched things from afar, and I got really scared. And I think as a, as a true believer and a true loyalist and one of their fiercest defenders in the beginning, I want people to know my journey and what I saw and how disillusioned I became. And then, and then let them make up their own minds. You know, something I wondered as I read the book, um, when you get to the election of 2020, 20, you talk about how you wish there had been some sort of third option for you to vote for. You didn't support Biden and his policies, but you had real misgivings about Donald Trump at that point, And you wish there had been another Republican you could vote for because you're a conservative Republican. Did you vote for Donald Trump in 2020? I did not. So you just left it blank? I wrote some I wrote somebody in. You want to tell me who it is? I don't. Okay. Um, so let's get to what led you to, to finally resign uh, the events of January 6th. You write in the book, January 6th was a truly devastating day for the country. But looking back now, it was bound to happen. Um, I don't disagree, but why do you think it was bound to happen? Well, because after he lost the election, he was so hyper-focused on making sure everybody knew the election was stolen. And he was Which fomenting. is not true, of course. It was that not. is not true. Right. I, believe, I believe Biden is our president. I, I don't like what he's doing, but I believe he is our president. But he was, um, he was fomenting violence. He was listening to people 
conspiracy theorists. And he was putting statements and tweets out there. And Donald Trump knows full well that he has a base of people out there who are willing to do whatever is needed or whatever he suggests to them. And he knows he can suggest things and also not have consequences. And I believe this is why leadership in the Republican Party and a lot of Republicans won't speak up. I have to believe that people feel the same way I do, but they're afraid. They're afraid to speak up because of the people that, you know, like the people uh, that were at the insurrection on January 6th. There's a, a violent, violent mob out there and um, watching him push that, you know, through November, December was was difficult. It's not just that Joe Biden is president, right? It's that he was duly elected, fairly elected. There's no evidence of any fraud that would have changed the election uh, at all in any state, correct? Correct. And I, I mean, even if you look at Arizona, which he was really hanging his hat on for a very, very long time, it turned out Biden won it uh, by larger numbers. So he, yes, he was elected president and it was legitimate. What was Donald Trump doing while the Capitol was under siege on January 6th? It is my understanding from some people, I was in the East Wing, um, well, I was actually at home, we were telecommuting with COVID, but it's my understanding from some people I was talking to that he was in his private dining room watching the TV and, and really talking about what fighters they were and how, how tough they were. You said earlier today that one of your biggest fears is that if Trump wins again, people from the January 6th crowd, the insurrectionists, will end up in the White House. Who, who are you talking about specifically? Who do you fear will become part of the White House? I don't have specific names. I don't. I mean, I, I have said people such as Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani or some of the people who believe wholeheartedly in these conspiracy theories. I believe that if he were to win in 2024, he will pick whoever stood by him, you know, defended him, and he will place those people who will have defended the indefensible into into the White House. And I want to I noted earlier there was a a guest on a different show that said, you know, I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't already know. And I, I think that for all of us in politics, perhaps this is perhaps this is something that a lot of people know. But I think that there is there are citizens out there who don't realize what a 2024 Donald Trump presidency can look like. And I'm just hoping against hope that I, by being completely honest, can can help people just understand what the consequences could truly be. And you write about that in the book. You write about how, how if Trump does end up back in the White House, he'll be unleashed. He won't have to run for re-election. He won't have to be worried about what voters think about him. You, you mm-hmm. suggest there could be retribution and revenge. Uh, mm-hmm. Against whom? I mean, okay, not to be joking, but I bet he'll put me in jail. Um, I, th- I really think anybody who spoke out against him, I think that, you know, look at what he's doing now. When you consider the Republicans who voted with their conscience and voted for impeachment in his second impeachment, Liz Cheney, Anthony Gonzalez, etc. He's already looking to looking for revenge on them and, and placing people who a lot of them don't even have what it would take to be a congressman. And it's not about those people being good candidates. It is about Donald Trump seeking revenge and getting people into Congress who will do exactly what he wants. Let's talk about January 6th for one one more second. Do you think that Trump was responsible for people coming to the Capitol on that day specifically so that they would stage a violent protest to stop Congress from certifying the election? Do you think that was his predetermined goal? You know, that's a really that's a really good question. My short answer is I don't know, but I I think that, you know, I know his I know his playbook pretty well and 
I know he was well aware that there was going to be a very large gathering, you know, a Stop the Steal gathering that he was going to be speaking at. I know that his campaign was working directly with some of the people, some of the vendors who were kind of organizing the campaign. I believe that when he went up there and made those strong statements of, we must be strong, we must go fight, let's walk down to the Capitol, I believe he knew what he was saying, and I believe he, again, like I said at the beginning, he knows what people are willing to do for him, but he also can has plausible deniability Can because he, he can just say, you know, that is not what I meant. Um, I also believe that he could and should have put something out immediately asking people to stop the violence because I believe, once again, there are people out there who, who listen to him, and he, he didn't do that for hours. There's a committee that's a, a special committee in the House of Representatives investigating the events of that day, as I'm sure you know. Have they reached out to you at all? Would you cooperate with them if they did? Yes, I would cooperate if, if they reached out. I've had a couple of very um, casual conversations about it. I haven't been formally asked, but yes, I would cooperate if needed, absolutely. Do you think that the president was essentially trying to stage a coup? I do. When you look at what he was doing to Vice President Pence, when you look at how many ways he was trying to get people and phone calls, even with Georgia and Arizona, and then again with pressuring uh, Mike Pence with all he wanted to do, and then that memo that has now come out about all the ways to, to you know, overturn this election, I do. It's dangerous. If you finally did resign out of disgust over what happened that day, why did you say in your statement that it was, quote, an honor to serve the country in the White House? Mm -hmm. I said it was an honor to serve the country, which I believe wholeheartedly. I said it was an honor to serve Melania Trump and her mission to help children. And I was very proud to help her with her mission to help children. Yeah, you you write very favorably about uh, Melania Trump's, uh, in your view, genuine affection for kids. Yes, yes, and that is true. And so um, I actually worded that tweet very, very carefully. It doesn't say President Trump. Uh, it says serving my country and Melania Trump and her, her mission to help children and, and take care of children. Alyssa Farah, who took over the press shop after you left the West Wing, said this about claims in your book. There's also ways to engage the press short of doing a press briefing. She could have done, you know, backgrounders in her office, but it seemed like she was largely MIA on the job. And I will say this. I think the book is, it's just disingenuous. She wasn't just a Trump staffer for all four years. She was an originalist. She campaigned for him. What's your response to that criticism? She wasn't there when I was press secretary. She doesn't know if I held backgrounders in my office, which I did. She doesn't know the one-on-one meetings that I intentionally held with many, many reporters. And she doesn't know the calls and emails that I answered on a 24-7 basis. Look, I, I fought North Koreans for the press. I did a lot of things for our press corps, including not allowing the president to kick them off the White House grounds. So there is a lot of a lot that I did behind the scenes. Alyssa came in with Mark Meadows and we did not work together um, at all. So I think it's easy for her to judge. But, you know, I think she said that before reading the book. So I I would encourage her to read the book and get a lot of the context and nuance there. I think Possibly one of the other things Alyssa was, and I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating, but possibly one of the other things that she's uh, talking about when she refers to you as an originalist is there were people that worked in the White House for Trump who were people who considered it their patriotic duty to try to have Trump succeed, even though he might not have been their first choice. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, let's say, a 
uh, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, for example, or H.R. Yes. McMaster, yes. Uh, et cetera, people who, who wanted to, the, the trains to run on time, who, mm-hmm. who wanted to be ballast in the ship. Mm-hmm. But you, you know, before Trump took office, when you were working on the campaign, he, mm-hmm. you, you knew that he had bragged about committing sexual assault on the Access Hollywood tape or mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. to ban all Muslims from entering the U.S., which is mm-hmm. bigotry and unconstitutional. He said mm-hmm. a judge couldn't be fair because of his Mexican heritage. He attacked Gold Star families, suggested mm-hmm. John McCain wasn't a hero because he'd been captured, and on and on and on. Yep. You know, and you were all in on that. Did you think his presidency would be different from how he ran for president? Well, a couple of things I would say there. You're right. I was in there from the beginning. I really felt that the president, uh, the former president, gave voice to a lot of people who felt forgotten. And I went to his rallies and I saw an excitement um, in, in politics that I hadn't seen in a long time. And I was very excited about that. By the time uh, the Access Hollywood tape came out that you mentioned, you know, he was the nominee. And I was in it at that point. And right or wrong, I, I turned my head and thought, well, now he's the Repu- Republican nominee. I'm a Republican. I've been here. I'm going to see this through. It's either him or it's Hillary Clinton. And I said, certainly didn't want Hillary Clinton. Um, but I did turn my head to a lot of things. And I, it kept going once I got into the White House. One thing I will say is that I spent you know, two and a half to three of my years in that White House working in the East Wing. And the East Wing was very different. We were very independent from the West Wing. I was very, very proud that Mrs. Trump was one of the first to put something out about Charlottesville. I was very proud that she, um, while the jacket turned that whole into a fiasco, I was very proud that she wanted to go to the border and, and look at the child separation issue. She was somebody who was independent and would go against her husband with some of his more controversial issues. And so... It was naive, I'm sure, but I thought I was literally on the right side of the house in that regard. Let's just say with the, the jacket, there's a photo on the back that's, uh, that's you, and that is uh, the First Lady with her I really don't care, do you jacket, which you have a whole ch- chapter in there in which you say she didn't even think anything of it. It wasn't a statement on anything. Um, and then this, that's, would you say you're being called to the principal's office because President, yes, President Trump's so angry about it? He was not happy with us. No, he wasn't. And then he came up with a lie. He concocted a lie. Let's say that you were talking about the press. And th- yes. that wasn't true at all. That but, was not true at all. No. But that's, but that's one of many, many lies that you own up to in the book, uh, telling. Mm-hmm. And, but, I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, you're not just lying to, to the press. I get that nobody cares about us. But, like, you're lying to the American people. Absolutely. And it's a regret. And I say it in the book and I talk about specific examples, uh, especially with General John Kelly, that I regret and I will always regret. You know, I can't I can't go back. And hindsight is always twenty twenty, And I am under no illusion that people are going to suddenly believe me or hail me as some hero. I don't need that. I I'm living in a great place. I have great friends. I get have great family. I'm looking forward now. And if I can convince even a few people who were like me and who were complete loyalists to just kind of see the cult-like atmosphere and understand that the Republican Party can only move forward in a positive way if we have another nominee, then I will at least have helped. It will yeah. never make up for anything, but I will have at least helped, and that is my hope. Well, I mean, the, the atmosphere you describe in the Trump White House is abusive and toxic. Um, yes. For, I mean, I'm not, even, I'm not even talking about the things he's saying about the press or or members of Congress. I'm just talking about the environment there. Um, you describe what you say. This is a, a fairly shocking uh, part of the book. You, you, you say President Trump had an inappropriate interest in a young press aide. He would summon her uh, to his cabin on Air Force One, insist that she be included on trips, be promoted, put on TV. He said something about her body 
behind her her back. I, I, you said that you were worried about you were you would accompany her to Trump's cabin and never leave them alone because you were so worried. Now, we're told I'm told that there's a personnel office in the office of the administration at the White House that has HR functions. Why did you not officially report it if you were that worried? I was very concerned. The person who was running the personnel office at that time was a lifelong Trump loyalist who at the end was doing nothing but trying to weed out anyone who dared say anything bad about about the president. So I did not feel comfortable that there was not a neutral person in that that position. And it would have just immediately gotten back to the president. Uh, Same with Mark Meadows. I just I did not feel comfortable going. And so the best I had personally was just myself. I so I stuck with her. I did. I don't know if she knew what was going on. I certainly didn't tell her. She certainly never complained to me. At that point, I would have had to go to somebody. Um, But I did the best I could with um, that situation. It's really creepy and disturbing. Um, I, look, I, I don't want to bring up, uh, th- this isn't something that I'm bringing up uh, in an untoward way because you write about it quite candidly in, in your book um, that you have had past experiences uh, with abusive relationships, uh, abusive members of your family. Uh, mm-hmm. And you, 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 you I'm, I, as I was reading, I was waiting for you to <laughs> draw the line and then you arrived there towards the end that that's why you stayed so long in the White House you, 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 because you're used to it. Quote, the Trump White House was just a fancy new setting for the same old crap I dealt with my whole life. My ex, Mark Meadows, even the president, all men who I felt had lied to me, lied about me, called me names, and or made me feel worthless, mm-hmm. unquote. Um, I ask you this in the most sympathetic way I can. Can, can you talk about that a bit? Yes, and, and I, don't, I don't even need you to ask in an unsympathetic way because I, I want to talk about it openly. It's something I didn't realize until I left D.C., and had some solitude in Kansas while I was sanding a floor and it really hit me. Um, People who have been abused, often they're so used to a certain environment that that is what's comfortable for them. And I don't know if that's going to make sense to a lot of people. So for me personally, I can't speak for my colleagues, but all I cared about was keeping um, the former president happy. You know, I just didn't want him to be mad. I would get physically ill. And, you know, perhaps that says something for me, too, that I just wasn't strong enough uh, to stick around. And and maybe I should have looked within and left just for that reason. Mark Meadows, I didn't care much about, you know, keeping him happy. But he was uh, he was also a very abusive way in his manipulations. And then, as you talk about, and actually I talk about today, you know, I had an ex that I dated and there was um, abuse in every way there. And um, that's something I actually told the president and the first lady about. And uh, they did nothing. You know, if it didn't affect them, and as long as I was keeping quiet and being good, then I guess that kind of behavior was okay. And again, I should have known. We had another issue like that in our White House that went largely ignored until the press uh, pointed it out so much that yeah. that person had to be let go. And, and let me just say, the, the person you're talking about, you don't name him in the book, but his name is Max Miller. He is running for Congress. And it's not just that President Trump, then President Trump, didn't do anything about it when he learned that he was allegedly abusive to you uh, in many very upsetting ways. Um, Trump is now backing this guy for Congress. Uh, and he stands, you know, fairly likely to win a House seat. Um, mm-hmm. you, you, you write about this again. You don't mention Max's name uh, in the op-ed in the Washington Post or in the book, but that must be very upsetting and something that the voters in that district in Ohio should know about. 
Of course, I think so. And, and you know, I have learned myself since that that uh, he's got a history of violence with other women, you know, but I didn't put his name in there um, on purpose because I've moved on. And look, if there's anything I can take away from this experience, it's that I am, you know, I'm almost stronger than ever now. And nobody is going to abuse me again ever in any way, shape or form. Um, for me, this is about behavior. Um, and I am not going to I'm not going to lie. It it was like a gut punch when I saw that he endorsed him, knowing, knowing um, what happened, you know, knowing, you know, I, I wasn't just some person that the president or the first lady, you know, didn't know. I told them that and I had been there for five years and I wasn't just making something up on the fly. And, you know, I had already told Mrs. Trump. And after I blurted it out to the president, which I never intended to do ever, um, I write about the situation in the book. But, you know, Mrs. Trump told me. She was glad I had told him. And that gave me some hope, stupidly, that maybe something was going to happen. Um, so the endorsement really, it, it kicked me in the teeth. That was a, that was a really, really tough one um, <clears throat> based on what happened. You also are, are um, pretty uh, brutal in writing about uh, Jared Kushner and, and Ivanka Trump. Um, the, the nicknames you, you and others in the White House have for them, the interns, and how Melania Trump, the first lady, referred to Ivanka as the princess. Um, why do you think they were in the White House? Why do you think they were doing what they were doing? Because you don't describe them as having accomplished a whole great deal, other than um, Jared Kushner pushing forward um, criminal justice reform, which, which the president apparently hated that, that, uh, that Jared made him do. Um, yes. but, 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 I mean, what, do they just like the proximity to power? What exactly... What was their purpose, do you think? You know, much like kind of, and this is how the book is, I start out talking about how much I really respected and admired yeah, everybody. Definitely. And, and they are no different. And I want to believe still that they entered there wanting to help and, and try to do good. But as I watched more and more and more, you know, basically, to keep it simple, they wanted to be there when things were going great. They wanted to be in all the photo ops. Um, they wanted to, of course, meet the queen. Um, I think Jared especially got very, very heady with power. A lot of us did, don't get me wrong. Um, and I think he became a real liability in that he would reach out to foreign leaders uh, directly rather than going through NSC. He went around every single chief of staff that we had, all four of them. And, you know, by the end, I just think he was almost a completely different person and didn't care about anything but, you know, kind of what he wanted, what he wanted to push through and taking credit for anything that was good and blaming anybody else when something went wrong. Yeah, even when it's something was his idea. You mentioned that several <laughs> yes. times. So Yes. Anyway, Stephanie Grisham, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Her new book is called I'll Take Your Questions Now, What I Saw at the Trump White House. It is out as of today. Best of luck with the book, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Our next guest is taking on the Trump-led Republican Party. Will it work? In our politics lead, a brand new challenger to Trump's stranglehold on the Republican Party. 2016 presidential candidate and former CIA operative Evan McMullen just announced his plan to unseat Trump ally Utah Senator Mike Lee in 2022. McMullen is running as an independent, he says. It's a state that has exclusively elected Republican senators for four decades. And McMullen joins us now for his first national interview since declaring his bid for U.S. Senate. Uh, Mr. McMullen, thanks so much for joining us. I want to ask you, 
Former Vice President Mike Pence is out there doing anything he can to try to get back in the good graces of Trump. I want you to take a listen to what Pence said about the day that pro-Trump mob threatened to hang him. I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January. They want to use that one day oh. to try and demean uh, the, the, the character and intentions of 74 million Americans who believed we could be strong again and prosperous again and supported our administration in 2016 and, and 2020. Just one day in January, one day in January when a rabid MAGA mob threatened to hang the vice president. But I guess the other question I have for you beyond your reaction to that is 58 percent of Utahns voted to reelect Trump in 2020. How are you going to persuade them? Well, first of all, I'm entering the campaign here, Jake, because we've got deeper problems than than even Trump. I know there's a lot of Trump talk and, and certainly I have spent a lot of time over the last four to five years warning against the dangers that, that he posed to the republic. But we've got deeper issues, and that is that we're so divided as a country, we're so polarized, that we're failing to solve major challenges facing the country. It was a tough summer here in Utah, where we had forest fires both in the state and outside of the state, and our air quality was the worst in the world. Uh, we're facing water shortages in which cities are having to truck in water. And that's all while we've got this raging, never-ending pandemic and the cost of health care and an exploding national debt. Right. These are all compounding crises that we have because I, I, I believe the extremes in our political system have gained too much influence. The extremes? So I'm running so is, is not in Is Senator Mike mm -hmm. Lee an extremist? Is that what you're, you're saying? I think Senator Lee went to Washington with the best of intentions. I, I really do. But I, I think he's lost his way in Washington. I think Washington has turned Mike Lee's head. And instead of working to, to find common ground and solve problems there, what he does is he spends his time obstructing and dividing Americans, dividing Utahns, dividing Americans. And as a result of that, these crises keep getting worse and worse. And Utah has very little say in Washington about what happens, a very small role in trying to resolve them. So what I'm proposing as a part of this campaign is that we take what I call the Utah way, which is our way of leadership. It is a way of leadership that finds common ground even while we stick to principle and we solve problems. That's how we do it here in Utah. And I think Washington needs more of that. And so I'm running to replace Mike Lee in the U.S. Senate to represent Utah in the Utah way and to solve problems, not only for our state, but especially for us. But in the meantime, have greater influence over the direction of the country so that we can help change these politics and get our country on track. Are you going to try to get the endorsement of Senator Mitt Romney or do you expect he'll he'll support his fellow Republican Mike Lee? You know, you'll have to go to him with that. I, I you know, we are both friends of Senator Romney and uh, I imagine that, uh, you know, that, that that will continue to be the case. You'll have to talk to him about how he'll handle uh, his involvement or, or lack thereof in the race. All right, Evan McMullen, thank you so much. Best of luck out there on the campaign trail. Family members of both Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie now speaking publicly what they said coming up. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.